This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Emily Vincent, a sheep farmer in Bern. She's carrying forward the sheep line developed with detours through South Africa and Australia by a rancher in Texas. In the midst of a difficult recovery from brain surgery, Vincent cheered herself by accepting the invitation of a Texas friend to tour sheep farms there. She cried when she saw the beauty of the yucca lily white dorper sheep. The old rancher cried too. He'd been waiting for her, for someone to take his flock and carry on his legacy. So tell us about, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, yucca lily. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay. So, you know, everybody is, everybody has DNA and we're filled with genetics and our grandparents and our great grandparents and all of that. And sheep have the same thing. They have a genetic line and the genetic line is usually noted by who raised the sheep. So like my sheep are all the genetic line is called Two Rock Ranch. Um, and so the yucca lily line that my Lino or little piglets from is, is yucca lily out of the yucca lily ranch. And that was um, one of the oldest white dorper ranches in the U.S. Let us back up and hear, first of all, what a white dorper is and why you are so fond of them. <laughs> well, as you can see from the picture, a white dorper is white um, and it's a South African breed. Uh, the South Africans in the 80s um, had a really hard time with um, selling their meat. They had sent a huge shipment overseas and it got condemned because it wasn't very good lamb meat. And the South African government stepped in and said, we have to help our farmers. We're going to come up with a breed. And so it's a South African. Actually, the government came up with the breed and they crossed a Persian and a, a Dorset uh, ram together, a horn Dorset. And that produced a Dorper. Dorper for the door is a Dorset and the purr is a Persian. And so they came up with this really awesome, very hardy um, breed. They, they're very good moms. They produce a lot of milk. They're, um, they have a strong parasite resistance, which is helpful. And they're just excellent foragers. And, um, you know, I, in my previous podcast, I kind of told you how I got into sheep and, um, so I got into white dorpers um, because I just thought they were just so pretty and they just they look in your eyes. My vet says they're like little puppy dogs. <laughs> they're just very docile and friendly. Um, and that's how I got into them. Well, that is fascinating. And I've heard you say dorper before. I never understood the Dorset Persian heritage and the fact that a government needed a sheep that was reliable enough, I'm assuming, with the parasite resistance and being able to forage, that would be good for South Africa because it would take less sort of maintenance. Is that true for the farmers? And so, you know, it's a 
it's a very it's one of the best meat breeds around because they have very quick weight gains. So the South Africans said, hey, we have to, you know, be able to produce something that's going to make money for our farmers because they saw that there was absolutely a need. And so some of the first people in the U.S. to get Dorpers were Texans because the Texas is a lot like South Africa, I guess. They have the same kind of climates and the harsh, you know, foraging um, method that's needed by the sheep in order to survive. And they found that Dorpers were perfectly suited for the Texas um, arid climate that they have down there. Um, and then slowly they started to spread across the U.S., mainly on the West Coast. And now they're making their way towards the East Coast. And you discovered them how? I'm not talking about we're going to spend much of our podcast on the yucca lily, <laughs> but how did you first come across white dorpers yourself when you were in California? Is that so? Yeah, uh, we had a roommate. Her name is Nia, and she worked for George Lucas, the Star Wars movie person. And she came home one day and she said, "George has five sheep. Can we get a couple?" And I said, sure. And Eric, my husband, said, as long as I never have to feed them, water them, look at them. <laughs> and, and we said, of course, no, never. And so we got the five sheep from George Lucas and we really liked them. And then a few weeks later, she came home and said, he has a couple more. Do we have room for a couple? And I'm like, sure, a couple is two. Eric will never notice two more sheep. <laughs> <laughs> And he wouldn't have, except when they got there, they brought 55 sheep. <laughs> and so we had now almost 60 sheep. And he noticed that, actually. it was I was shocked, but he did actually notice <laughs> that there were 60 sheep on the property when he got home. And he said, what happened? And I'm like, mm, it was supposed to be a couple. But we realized that the breed, we were not suited to the breed of sheep that they were because they were very flighty. They're American black belly. So they're like a very flighty breed. And we didn't have very good fencing. And so I sold all of them. And uh, I was going around because I love sheep. And California, you can't mow because if you create a spark, it'll, you know, set a town on fire. And so um, we needed a sheep for the pastures. And I was driving down the road and I saw this farm that had some white sheep in the field. And <clears throat> I stopped at the farm. I knocked on the door and I said, can I see your sheep? Because I realized recently that I love sheep and I need some sheep and I like your sheep. And so they took me out to the pasture. They love their sheep, too. And um, they ended up being white dorpers. And I found some online that were being sold. And so I got a small flock of 10. And Eric was very happy because we did not have 60 then. We only had 10. And so. <laughs> you move these sheep across the country, and how many? Do you, how many do you have now? We have around three hundred. And is Eric happy? So, he is. <laughs> yeah. Because okay. I'm a full time farmer now, <laughs> so yeah. he, he so still doesn't have to do much with them. Although he has delivered some, you know, on his own in breach, and I'm very proud of him. And you know, he feels. I, I think he's part sheep. He just doesn't know it. Well, part farmer, maybe. He <laughs> um, can always tell when somebody's not feeling well. Like, he could look yeah. out into the pasture and be like, I think that sheep doesn't look very happy. And I'm like, hmm. And I go out there, and you're right. It wasn't. Well, so those of I us, think he has a very sensitive spirit. Those of us that don't live on farms probably cannot understand how constant 
the presence of sheep are in your life. For instance, we were going to do this podcast on Friday, and Emily emailed because one of the ewes was delivering. And yes, yes, yeah. So it, it must be. I don't know. Like you, you never have a life that's separate from your animals. Is that true? <laughs> that is true. And I think that people that don't farm. Um, don't understand what goes into running a farm because you can't just have a worker there for eight hours. Farming is a 24 seven. Um, and, you know, especially in New York, you know, you see all the changes with the, the laws and all of that. But I think what people have to understand is that farming is, is it doesn't end. Like you can't just say, okay, I'm going to clock out and go home. It keeps going without you, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, it's, it's New York is very, very good to farmers, um, much better than California. And I think that if more people can go out and visit their local farms and just see what actually is involved in it, they'll, I think they'll be very appreciative of all the long, laborious hours that people have to put into actually making their farm stay afloat not even make money just actually just stay afloat so so you mentioned that the white dorpers were a good fit in texas and that is where you found the yucca lilies that you're now raising and just tell us that story if you would (laughs) how it is you you came to be kind of the standard bearer this uh, this breed so in um, January of 2020, I had a brain tumor that they took out at Columbia. But after I got out of my surgery, I had just the most horrendous vertigo that you could ever have. It was it was very hard. I went to physical therapy three times a week for two years. Um, and at the towards the I guess in around March of 2021, I was pretty depressed and I needed to like. get out of the house, get off the farm, do something because, you know, it was just, I needed to, you know, cheer myself up a little. And my friend Vicki said, if you can make it down to Dallas, Texas, where I will drive you around because I couldn't drive at the time because I had terrible vertigo. I will drive you around to all these sheep farms and we'll go look at sheep together. (laughs) But can I just interrupt you? I'm dying to hear this story, but yes, I was so worried when I talked to you at that time about the vertigo, are you better now? Are you? I'm doing much better. Yes. I'm driving again. I'm really happy about that. Um, I mean, it still hits me at times, but I think it's just, you know, you wake up in the morning and I, I can, I can better handle it when it hits me, you know, it, it definitely has subsided a lot. So wow. thank you. And just yeah. people might not be aware, Emily was also, as a full-time farmer, she was also a full-time nurse commuting down to New York City where she worked yeah. in the ICU. But now you're just focused entirely on the farm. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't work because I couldn't, <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't stand up for you know, very long. And I mean, when I stood up, I was teetering. (laughs) I looked like I was perpetually drunk. So I, and I couldn't drive, so I couldn't get down to my job in New York city. And I think that was really, really hard for me to like face that, you know, like I am a strong woman, but I do have limitations and I'm not used to that. I'm like, nothing will hold me back, you know? And you kind of have to have that when you're a farmer (laughs) because you have to have like eternal optimism. And I did have eternal optimism. It's just, 
there were some things I just couldn't do anymore. And so I started, you know, in March of 2021, you know, saying, okay, coming to grips with my reality, that was my life at the time and saying, okay, I have this disability and how am I going to work around it? You know, and, and it's hard to be such a strong person and, and then all of a sudden not feel like I'm in control. You know, oh, it must be horrible for anybody, yeah. but especially for somebody like yourself. <laughs> but you you redefined yourself and are now yeah. flourishing. Yeah. And um, that's wonderful. And you this was all in the midst of the pandemic, too, which right, was right. isolating for anyone. But certainly right. must have been a terrible time to be coping. Well, with. I think it was really hard because I wanted to go and help my fellow nurses. Like I wanted to be down there in the thick of things. I wanted to help COVID patients and I felt like I was letting them down, you know? No. So it was, it was hard. So my friend Vicki from Texas, she said in March of 2021, because I'm sure I called her and was crying to her about this. She said enough, like, let's just go do something fun. Like, you know, and the plane trip wasn't very long. It was really hard with vertigo and it took me a long time to board, (laughs) but I got on the plane I got down there and we drove around and we looked at these sheep farms. It was supposed to cheer me up and it, it <laughs> kind of cheered me up. I mean, I love looking at sheep. So, <laughs> um, and I don't think a lot of your listeners would think that going around to all these sheep farms in West Texas would be that exciting, but it was for me. So <laughs> that's and, why I'm a sheep farmer. And this is where you discovered is it Mike Sutter? Is that his name? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I went down there to like, I really wanted to find a U to start another U line on my property because I have my genetics, but I wanted to kind of branch out into other genetics. And I really didn't know what I was looking for, but I knew when I saw it that I would know that that was the one for me, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like meeting the person of your dreams and you just know when you see them. And that's how it is for me and sheep. I just know. And so we went down and we looked at, oh, I don't know, like nine or 10 different ranches. And I didn't find the you of my dreams. <laughs> um, so it was the right before the last day. And I said to Vicki, because I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to go look at more sheep. And she's like, really? Are you OK? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just tired of looking at sheep that don't really do it for me. And she said, no, you came down here. We're going to do it. We're going to go to one more farm or ranch. So pick one and we're going to go tomorrow. <laughs> She's a good friend. <laughs> and so I said, OK, Vicky, I'll go do it. And so I looked in my genetics and my genetics are just filled with yucca lily, the yucca lily line. And I knew that they were kind of in Texas. So I thought, well, maybe the yucca lily ranch is kind of around here. And wouldn't you know, it was like 10 minutes from our hotel. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I called him and it was really last minute. I called him. It was seven at night or eight at night. And they answered the phone. He and his wife answered the phone pretty much simultaneously. And I said, you know, I explained who I was and that I came down from New York and I had looked at all these sheep, but I didn't find the sheep of my dreams yet. And could I just come and meet them? Because, you know, I had read so much about them and they were so influential in the white dorper breed that I I didn't think they had any sheep left actually because they're much older now Um, but 
they he said Mike Sutterith, the owner of Yuckalilly Ranch, said, Absolutely, we'd love to show you around. Please come. And um he said, I have nothing for sale though. I just want to let you know. And I said, Yeah, no, I I would just like to come and see your sheep and talk to you about sheep. I mean, sounds really fun to me. So Vicky and I drove there the next day. And you know, in Texas, there's no street signs. There's like no way to know if you're really on the right path because where they're at, there's not even like GPS anymore. They're way in the middle of nowhere. So it's like at the big cactus that looks like a fish turned right, at the water tank <laughs> that's about five miles down the road after the short fence turned left. I'm like, wow, these are really weird directions. <laughs> we got a little lost, actually. <laughs> but we finally found found a dusty like little ranch. It was very pretty, though and we pulled up to the ranch and I remember the car hadn't even stopped and I was opening the door to get out of the car and Vicky grabbed my arm and she's like you're gonna get yourself killed and I'm like look at him Vicky look at the sheep look at him <laughs> and she was like oh my god what's wrong with you and I'm like they're beautiful <laughs> So it was like true love. <laughs> it was. It was instantaneous true love. And Mike was there. I, I, you know, he was about, he's maybe 6'4". He's skinny as a rail. And he has a huge, huge Texas hat on. You know, one of those cowboy hats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and um, he came up to me and he, he put his arm around me. And I, I looked at the sheep and he said, aren't they beautiful? And I looked up at him and I had tears running down my face and he had tears running down his oh face and we both cried over sheep together and that's how we met. We were both like, <laughs> oh I said, they're gosh. stunning. Oh my gosh. Oh, I love that story. And, and he's like 90, you know, and I'm half his age. And it was just, it was like, he looked at me and he was like, we were meant to meet. And I was like, are you serious? And he's like, absolutely. I've been waiting for you for a really long time. Oh, my gosh. And tell us why he had been waiting. Well, he wanted to retire. And he, you know, I think he has, and don't quote me on this, but I think he has four kids. And they're all very, 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 like, smart. Like, they're pilots and they're, they're accountants and they're just very smart kids. And they were so smart, they don't want sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no one to take over. Yeah. And, you know, he had his whole life was built around these sheep. So um, I think it really he he didn't want to let them go until he had the right person to pass them on to. So let's take a little side trip to hear about his life. If you could just kind of walk us yeah. through. You say sheep were his whole life. So. Um, I I called him and, and talked to him and his wife about this, um, but he so I got a little background on him. He was in the army. Uh, he's actually an ENT doctor, and he got his medical training in the army uh, in San Francisco. And um, when he was doing his medical training, he his parents became very very sick, and so he got a compassionate leave to be near them. And um, but they ended up passing when he was 27, uh, and so. He, after he graduated and became a doctor, he and his wife, Jean, went to Germany for a few years because they needed to repay his student loan with mm -hmm. the Army, and they just didn't have the money to actually pay it. So they gave of their service, which was wonderful. Um, but, you know, he inherited the ranch in Texas from his parents, so um, he really wasn't there 
um, to manage it. They had some cattle and various grazers on the ranch, but you know, he, he didn't have a lot of, um, day-to-day interaction with that. And so, um, when they finally moved back, he started his practice in Dallas. He retired in 99, but a few years before he retired, he's like, I want to do something with the ranch. And so they got some black-headed dorpers. So there's white-headed dorpers and there's black-headed dorpers and they have slightly different genetics, but um, they got their first uh, dorper genetics from Canada. And I mean, that's a pretty long story, but um, at the end of the day, the Canadian border had to close because of the hoof and mouth disease. I don't remember if you, I don't know if you remember that when that happened. I do, but probably but, not with the specificity <laughs> that you would know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, so the, the Canadian border closed. They couldn't get any more genetics. The U.S. border closed and Mexico closed for trade. So um, they really didn't have a lot of options to bring genetics into the U.S. So um, they How, had met. Let me just interrupt because yeah, I don't understand sure. this. My listeners probably don't either. By bringing genetics in, you mean bringing in animals that are going to be bred? Or are they something else you yeah, bring in? so it depends. And I'm not a huge, you know... I don't know all the ins and outs, but I know some of them. And from some countries, you can bring embryos and semen, and other countries, you cannot. And so an embryo is basically like an egg that's been fertilized um, from a a female. And so um, you can bring those in, but you couldn't bring them in from Canada. You could only bring them in from Australia. And I see. So hoof and mouth disease, hoof and mouth disease, could have been transmitted even through an embryo. So that's why they just shut that down from Canada. So that's why the borders were closed. I see. Okay. Yeah. So go ahead. I and interrupted your story. No, 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 no. I want you to. So with the help of um, Raymond Reed, who's a South African Dorper judge and educator, um, Mike and Jean got some white Dorper genetics before the border closed. Um, the African genetics, I mean, it's really kind of fascinating how they got them. They went out to South Africa and met with two breeders, and they in turn picked the sheep, the ewes, the moms that they liked. The breeders flushed them and sent the embryos to Australia, where an Australian man named Adrian Veach from Kaya Dorpers grew the embryos in his sheep, then he birthed them out, he flushed those embryos out, and he sent them to the U.S. That is quite a, a world, <laughs> an international <laughs> genetic story for these sheep. So just to get, just to make sure I grasp this, the sheep yeah. themselves were in South Africa, exactly. and the Sutterists went and visited and mm-hmm. found they liked these sheep. And mm-hmm. when you say flushed, that means that the embryos were taken from the ewes, and they yeah, were... The- yeah, they the were, eggs. Yeah, the eggs. They were sent to Australia, where they were yes. grown in the uterus of sheep there. And, Other sheep, right. Right. And <laughs> then those, in turn, were sent. But why Why the trip to Australia? Was there a reason for that? Instead yeah, because you can't bring in anything from South Africa into the U.S. Oh, oh, see, I missed that step of the story. Okay. Yeah, so it kind of is like... A way around that. Mm-hmm. 
So they had to actually send what they wanted from South Africa to Australia. The Australians had to regrow it, basically, and then send it to the U.S. Fascinating. So after they went through this incredible international maneuver, (laughs) were they then, they were happy with the sheep that they got? Yeah, so they... They were only expecting 110 embryos, but when they got to the U.S., Adrian Veach had actually sent them 199. I mean, how honest is that? He could have kept them and not said anything, but he sent them everything. And Mike was so impressed by the, the, the uh, you know, he grew them out here. So he was so impressed that he got Adrian Veach a gator, <laughs> John Deere gator. Oh, wow. That's a, a nice present. thank you gift, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So these, um, the, the name Yucca Lily, that was the name of the ranch that he had inherited. Is that how this sheep exactly. line got its yeah. name? And is there yeah. a story there? Yucca is a plant, is it? Yeah, I guess that's the only, I mean, the farm was covered with yucca plants, so I guess that's why it's called the Yucca Lily Ranch. I see. But because um, you're after he, after he got those genetics from, I guess Australia, <laughs> I guess South Africa via Australia, the South Africans that actually owned the ewes that he had flushed went out of business, and so now there are no more gene- There's no more genetic basis for the yucca lilies in South Africa. So, so it's, it's basically a closed line now, and that's why it's it's so valuable. And you are now carrying this on in a ranch that you've named Two Rock Ranch. And there exactly. are there are no other ranches that I know of in the Hilltowns. This was a name that you got from your California years. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, we live on the border of Petaluma and Two Rock, and. Um, so I named it Two Rock Ranch, but had I known how many rocks were actually on my farm, I would have probably called it Two Million Rock Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> it is very rocky soil in it the Helderbergs. Yeah, well, yes. that was a story from an earlier podcast, but so wonderful. I'm going to summarize it. You were like kind of at a hole in the wall diner, restaurant, yes. and <laughs> the man there said, The most beautiful place in the world is Burn. And you, exactly. You ended up living here it's amazing (laughs) so just tell us a little you had emailed me and I find it because I'm not a farmer just stunning that um you had the top selling ewe lamb in the United States um one of these yucca lily lambs that sold for ten thousand five hundred dollars to Bill and Diane Moy in California so just how do you like put a put up a lamb for sale you know i think most of us think of livestock auctions as a farmer standing around locally <laughs> and how, how do you how do you reach people what what is the um method that's used for selling lambs <laughs> sorry can you hear me? I can. Did you hear my question? We kind of no, lost it. No, I lost my internet connection. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's okay. I'll repeat it. I was just saying that you had emailed me that you sold the top selling you yes. in the United States for $10,500 to this couple in California, Bill and Diane Moy. And I was hoping you could just explain, because I think most of us think of 
you know, auctions for livestock as being very local, you know, where people gather and, and see the lamb or cow or whatever. How, how does this work? How is this? So, you know, just in order to get genetics out, we there's public auctions. And so um, I decided to have a public auction and offer uh, eight, eight sheep for it and i mean that it was wonderful i mean everybody was like wow we want your genetics and i think then i kind of realized i mean i always thought the yuccalilli line was very important but i finally realized like how truly how it, how much it means to people when somebody would pay ten thousand five hundred dollars for a lamb i mean not even a full-grown sheep and so i think that it's you know it's maybe you don't see the influence that you have when you're in the middle of something but you know it, it goes on it's it's like a legacy and and i feel like and i think mike would agree that he left me a legacy and it's something that i i i really cherish because this is his whole life's work and it's continuing on is really incredible it really is. And as you mentioned, the age difference, the geography dif- difference, but that meeting where you connected and both wept. <laughs> but I just, if you could explain the mechanism, like you said, um, you you had this auction, but like, how is it on the internet? You posted ahead. Yeah, so it's how- on the internet. I posted ahead of time. I, you know, took pictures of the sheep and got a video of the sheep and put up put them up online and talked about their bloodlines a little and um and then anybody can get on you can advertise it on facebook or the auction advertises it as well and anybody can get on and bid on your sheep and um so it's just kind of ironic that i brought all my sheep from california I got a whole bunch of sheep from Texas, and they go back across the U.S. already. <laughs> so there's actual bidding going on where you can see different yeah, places, yeah. different parts of the country where people are going back and forth. And yeah, exactly. these are the ultimate winners. And yeah. then how do you get the lamb to them? Uh, I mean, so then you have a holler. Um, what I did was I took the ewe lamb to uh, and her sister, actually, about her sister, too. Um, I took them to Louisville, which is which is um, the North American International Livestock Expo. And then at the at Louisville, they had a holler. I, the one that took my sheep all the way from California and took the yuccalis from Texas, took this lamb back to California. And then do you stay in touch with these people? You seem to have such a personal connection to not just your sheep, but also to the people that are also farm. Are you called a farmer or a shepherd? I I guess it just depends. Okay. Well, you seem to have very personal connections with both your animals and with the other shepherds or farmers. Yeah. So have you stayed in touch with these people? Do you know how that lamb is doing? She's doing great. I mean, they took pictures and sent them to me. They just, they love her so much. So, and her sister's there. I felt good because I didn't want her to be alone on the trip, you know? Yeah. So it was nice that she had her sister with her. Well, our time has just flown by as it always does when I talk to you. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I guess. I mean, we, we look at farm transitions nowadays, and I've, I've read a lot on the Cornell website, and I think you've actually 
talked about that in the paper and and leave you know how the farmer group is aging and how it you know a younger generation is coming up and i think you know especially with new york farmers aging out it's really important that we find young people that want to carry on our legacy of farming you know and i'm i'm I know what it did for me and hopefully when it's my turn I can pass it on to somebody that comes and cries over my sheep <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I think just with the transition of the aging farmer I think it's really important to, to that we all stick together that we all help each other and we say okay you know soon, soon I won't be able to farm who will take my place and who will go after me and who can carry on what I've worked so hard to, to build and so um, yeah. Well, thank you, Emily. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>